0: As we continue worshiping together today, you may turn in your favorite Bible app, or the Bibles that can be found in the pews, and receive this reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and when he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. While Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God.
1: And let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for renewing your church, for being present among us in so many ways, for guiding us and empowering us to be about the work that you have for us to do and helping us to do the hard work of living as your beloved ones, as members of the kingdom. In this moment, O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you and you alone, O God, are our strength and our salvation, amen. When I was a kid and into my teenage years, my family would make a trip to Lead Hill, Arkansas, for the annual 4th of July picnic. This event that lasted all day and into the night over several days was held at a park uh, next to a corral where there was always a rodeo that coincided with, with the festival. There was live music, there was country dancing, bingo, other game booths, food booths, and homemade crafts for sale. The older folks would come and bring their folding chairs and gather under the shade trees to visit. And the young children would run around at will, wherever they wanted to go. And the teenagers would form packs and start roaming around, looking about how to be seen and who they could see and with whom they wanted to flirt. Lead Hill is the town near my father's home place and we went there regularly for weekend stays with my grandparents. But on the occasion of the big picnic, we weren't the only Gaines clan making our way to that place because it had been established that at an appointed time during the 4th of July picnic that the Gaines family reunion would take place. I knew many of the folk who gathered, bringing their potluck dishes and their stories. My grandfather had eight siblings, most of whom had children, so there was quite a brood. We gathered in a small country social hall not too far from Bullshoals Lake, where my favorite cousin of my father had a speedboat and would take us out to, to water ski. My mother was the creator and keeper of the photo albums, Filled with history, every image a story. And there were lots of stories and memories that got shared over heaping plates of chicken and meatballs and salads and jello. <laughs> and as I got older, I was no longer the kid running around playing ghost in the graveyard or wandering about trying to see or be seen as a teen. I became one of the older ones who would gather in the grown-up circles and visit. And I realized how there were so many stories that got told, but so many other stories that were never spoken aloud. I realized how most of us tacitly agreed that Cousin Sally might be a mess, but she's ours, and we love her. As I think back to those gatherings, I can feel, even now, the complicated feelings and relationships, the scandals and the hurts, and the formative experiences that affected many in the room. In any family gathering, there's often a whole lot of subtext going on. The dynamics that folk are trying to navigate are many. And the topics to avoid, and sometimes the people to try to avoid, are always part of the deal, as everyone tries to make sure that people have a nice time. And if this is true in general for all of us, the family reunion that we see in our story from Genesis today is even more complicated. Now, upon just hearing it, even hearing it read powerfully as we did this morning, it's difficult to really understand the impact of this story without getting the backstory. story. So I want to invite all of us to settle in for a little story time, all right? Once upon a time, you know? Last week, we received the first story in the Joseph saga, where we learned that Joseph was a beloved son and did some things that made his brothers angry. In fact, Joseph's brothers hated him. They kidnapped him, they uh, threw him in a pit, they planned to murder him, and finally they settled on just selling him into slavery. They deceived their father after this, allowing him to believe that his favorite son, Joseph, had died. And once Joseph gets to Egypt, all sorts of hijinks occur. He is falsely accused of making advances toward his master's wife, which subsequently gets him thrown into jail. And while he is in jail, Two of his fellow inmates have terrible dreams, and he interprets their dreams in a way that actually come to pass. One of those got killed, but the other one um, was released from jail and went back into service as the cupbearer to Pharaoh. Now, after some years have passed, Pharaoh himself has a terrible nightmare, and the cupbearer remembers Joseph who is then brought out of jail and presented to Pharaoh. Joseph proceeds to interpret the dream, explaining that the dream's meaning is that there will be seven years of bounteous harvests in Egypt and the land surrounding, followed by seven years of devastating famine. Now, Pharaoh proceeds to set Joseph up as the steward of all the resources of the Egyptian empire. Tasks with storing up food for seven years so that there would be uh, preparation and food for the famine to come. Joseph is given an Egyptian wife. He's given an Egyptian name. His name was Zaphanath-Pania, fancy pants and a position of power second only to Pharaoh himself. And while Joseph's technicolor dream coat, the gift from his father, might have been nice, it was nothing compared to the threads that Pharaoh set him up in. And when the famine comes to pass, it affects all the neighboring lands and peoples, including Joseph's own father, Jacob, and all of his brothers. Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy food. All of his sons except for Benjamin, the youngest, the only remaining son of Jacob's most beloved wife, Rachel. He won't let Benjamin go. The other sons are sent to buy food in Egypt. And who do they encounter when they get there? Well, none other than Joseph, their brother, whom they had sold into slavery more than 10 years before. But they don't recognize him. Perhaps they don't recognize him because he's all dressed up in foreign garb. He is walking like an Egyptian. And he's also talking like an Egyptian. He is speaking through an interpreter as if he doesn't understand a word that his brothers are saying. Or perhaps, perhaps they didn't recognize him because it's like you know, like when you see somebody in a place that you're not used to seeing them, you don't expect to see them there, and you don't, you just can't see who they are. You walk right past them. You know them well, but this happens to me all the time. I run into somebody, and I'll be like, "Hey!" and they look at me like, "Who are you?" Because I'm not like you know, I don't know. All in all, this business—it's pretty funny. In any case, the brothers don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes his brothers, and he proceeds to mess with them. <laughs> he accuses them of being spies, and he throws them into jail for at least three days. And then he, he keeps one of them, Simeon, in jail, demanding that the others go back to their home and bring, fetch their youngest brother, Joseph's full brother, Benjamin, and bring him back. He plays with their minds once they're on their way home by putting the money that the brothers had already paid for the grain they were carrying home, he put that money back in their sacks. So when they opened the bags to find the grain, they found the money and they thought, he is trying to frame us and tell us we stole this money. When they got home, Jacob wouldn't let Benjamin out of his sight, even to save Simeon, poor Simeon, but he wouldn't let Benjamin out of his sight because in Joseph's absence, Benjamin, Rachel's only other son, had become his favorite. Well, after they eventually run out of food and they have to go back to Egypt, the brothers know that they're not going to get any conversation, they're not going to get any food, they're not going to get anything if they don't come with Benjamin because that was the term set by Joseph. And so Judah, and remember Judah is the brother who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place, Judah pleads with his father saying, that he will promise that if Benjamin doesn't return whole, that he, Judah, will personally take the blame forever. At this, Jacob relents, and down they all go back to Egypt. In the last series of deceptions that come next, Joseph, the powerful Egyptian ruler, frames his baby brother, Benjamin. For stealing his silver cup. And then, once Benjamin is caught, Joseph takes Benjamin as a slave, saying, I'll let all you other brothers go free. Side note, I tend to believe that all the deceptions and the mind games up until now were probably payback for the wrong done to Joseph all those years ago. And one could interpret this action with Benjamin that way as well. But there's another interpretation that I find really compelling, and that is to view this moment as a kind of specific test. Will you, my brothers, Joseph says, will you, my brothers, sell Rachel's other son into slavery just as you sold me? Will you buy your own freedom at the expense of Jacob's remaining beloved son? Well, the response comes, whatever it was, the response comes from Judah in a full-throated plea on behalf of his father, who he says, my father has already lost one beloved son, and if you don't let us bring this youngest beloved son home, our father will die. And here is where our text for today begins. Our piece of the story isn't technically a first reunion, but it is the moment when Joseph can no longer contain his emotions. If you read the whole story in the text, you'll see that Joseph has been crying and having all sorts of big emotions, big feelings, all the way through, but he kept them to Himself, but in this moment, he can no longer contain his emotions or hide his true identity. And upon his first revelatory words, the brothers are silent. The word used in the NRSV is dismayed. Perhaps they feel dismay not only because it feels like they're seeing a ghost. I'm sure they assumed he was dead. Or, but perhaps also because Joseph asks about his father. Now, see, this would have conjured all sorts of feelings in the brothers who had been carrying around the guilt of their betrayal for years. Joseph's being alive will mean that they have to tell their father what they did. And it's one thing to feel guilt for what you've done, It's a whole other thing to have to face up to the person that you have wronged or to have to make your guilt public. Dismayed, they were. But when Joseph gets no answer, he calls them closer, and he says it out loud, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But then he goes on to say this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. I'm going to come back to that. The story goes on, Joseph proceeds to promise that his father, brothers, all the family will not be left destitute as a result of the ongoing famine, but rather that Joseph will provide for them in Goshen near Egypt, and they will have all they need to thrive. And then what follows from there is a lot of hugging and kissing and crying and weeping upon one another's necks. It's a whole scene. It's a dramatic scene. It's a touching scene that brings resolution to all that had come before. Hebrew Bible scholar Will Gaffney acknowledges the tenderness in the family reunion of Joseph with his brothers. She notes the poignancy of the forgiveness offered even after all that Joseph had endured at his brother's hands. But then she goes on to add that the forgiveness and the reconciliation are, quote, entwined with a deeply problematic theological gloss, that the human trafficking in the story was a tool of God to save the lives of Joseph and his family from the impending famine, justifying the actions of his brothers in selling him into slavery. She goes on, while that narrative device makes for great theater in the story of Joseph, it paints an unrealistic glaze over the institution of slavery in and beyond the Bible." End quote. In this moment, friends, when a candidate for the highest public office in our country is supporting a history curriculum that suggests that enslaved people received the benefit of learning certain skills, it is very important that when we gather in places like this one that we make it very clear about what our sacred story says and what it does not say. Professor Gaffney goes on to say, quote, Joseph's experience of slavery in the narrative was one in a million. I'm gonna pause, side note, think about it. What other slave have we ever heard of who rises to the position of number two in the, the patriarchal Egyptian kingdom? If you've seen Barbie, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it doesn't happen. And by the way, kingdom is different than kingdom. <laughs> kingdom is about being family with loving and just relationships in the image of God. That's kingdom. That's got the teeth of patriarchy taken out. You hear what I'm saying? That's kingdom. Now, kingdom is a whole other situation. And in this story, Joseph is lifted up to number two in that unfortunate kind of way. It doesn't happen. Gap- Professor Gaffney says his experience of slavery was one in a million, and it does not mitigate against the unjust, dehumanizing institution utilized by the Egyptians and other ancient peoples, including the Israelites, or American chattel slavery in North and South America and the Caribbean or the contemporary sexual trafficking of persons of every gender and age. The claim of verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God, should perhaps be understood in this story as Joseph's perception of his circumstances and not as a broader religious sanction of slavery, of human trafficking, or any other social ill over which a person triumphs. Joseph does what so many people do, which is to try to make sense out of what he's experienced by drawing on his own limited understanding of God. Another scholar points out that Joseph, in verse eight, does not attribute the brothers' sinful actions to God. God did not make the brothers sin. Joseph says, you sold me into Egypt to his brothers. But Joseph does, however, affirm that God was able to use these actions, sinful as they were, for God's own purposes. The brothers devised evil and God turned it to good. Note also that God's will is for the preservation of life, the life of the family of Jacob, but indeed the lives of many people, including the Egyptians. And keep in mind, Joseph married an Egyptian. Just a side note, I think we forget this stuff. Interracial marriage is not new, that's all I'm saying. I wonder, another thing that I wonder about in this story, I wonder how this reunion would have gone had Joseph remained in prison or remained enslaved. Would he have been able to get to the point of extending grace to his brothers then? We'll never know since the family story in our album is the one we received today. And from this story, we learn several things. First, we learn that it is possible to use whatever power we have for good and not for harm. Joseph could have had his brothers imprisoned, sold into slavery, tortured or killed with nothing more than a word. Yes, he played with their emotions, he tested them, but he did not harm them, and ultimately, he used his powers for good. And we're called to do the same. The second is that this family story teaches us that even for a family in which there has been unimaginable pain and harm inflicted, it is possible for forgiveness, and for even healing to happen. We know that reconciliation may not always be possible, or it may not always happen in the broken places in our families, but it is our call as followers of Jesus to be reconcilers and to practice forgiveness and grace. And finally, this family story is a story of growth in life and of relationship Notice that Judah and all the brothers who had at one time been more than willing to kill the son most favored by their father now rally around Benjamin to save him. There has been growth and change. And Joseph, though a complicated character for sure, is no longer the know-it-all brat that we encountered last week but is able to perceive and to trust God's presence and provision in his own challenging circumstances and to treat his brothers at the end of the day with grace rather than vengeance. We, like the brothers in Joseph, are called to grow up too, to mature in love and in faith and in humility. As I was working on this sermon, I reached out to my mother to ask a couple of questions about the family reunions we used to have. I got a series of notes back. My mother really loves Messenger. I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> a series of notes back with the story of my great-grandmother who raised a daughter out of wedlock when that sort of thing just wasn't done. And when the daughter, Ethel, Oh, by the way, my, the story is, is that my great-grandmother refused to marry Ethel's father. Lord knows why. We don't know. But in any case, my great-grandfather fell in love with this strong, defiant woman when Ethel was eight, married her, and raised Ethel as his own, along with their other eight children. And mom says about this, she says, there's quite a lot to be proud of in your Gaines ancestry. All families have their secrets and their stories, their broken places and their scars. The biblical families, our own ancestors in faith, are the same. They may be a mess, but they're ours. (laughs) And shining through here and there are moments of extraordinary tenderness and grace, of courage, and of reconciliation. Held in the images and the anecdotes of our sacred storybook are examples of how God finds a way to work, even in the middle of our messes, to bring good things to be. And if it could be so then for them, it can be so now for us. Thanks be to God.